0: Welcome to another episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration between my company, HB, and Fastcase and Law Street Media. Today we're going to talk about three big subjects, Two of them, uh, two of them have been taken up by the Supreme Court. The first is TransUnion versus Ramirez. That case will uh, is an example of how just how badly things can go when your credit report has errors on it. Who knew you could be put on a terrorist watch list or on a list with drug dealers? So those are good times. And that is before the Supreme Court. And our guests will talk about that. Next is force and mass arbitration and the perils associated with with those uh, requirements. Uh, And lastly is Goldman Sachs versus Arkansas Teachers. This has been called by Reuters a case that could redefine the ability of shareholders to pursue class actions against public companies whose stock prices fall. So that is a big deal, also at the Supreme Court. And here to talk about those is somebody who is uniquely qualified to talk about them, F. Paul Bland, Jr. He's executive director with Public Justice where he manages and leads their legal and foundation staff and guides their litigation docket and other advocacy. He's won and argued more than 40 cases that led to reported decisions for consumers, employees, and whistleblowers. He's won cases at the appellate level, the federal appellate level, as well as as a number of state high courts. And he scored a big victory in a case in the Supreme Court the 2019 Home Depot versus Jackson case, which dealt with the Fair, excuse me, the Class Action Fairness Act. So with that, I let, uh, I ask Paul to talk a little bit about his organization, and then we dive right into the topics. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing it. Uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to to describe the mission and purpose of public justice. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So, public justice is a nonprofit
1: legal advocacy organization. We bring high-impact lawsuits designed to protect sort of the sustainability of the earth. So, we do some big environmental cases. We do a lot of cases involving predatory corporate conduct where Corporations cheat people through wage theft or predatory lending or securities fraud or a range of things, and they end up making the country much, much less fair. And we do significant civil rights cases. And in addition to litigation, we have a significant communications team, and we try and educate the public and educate the bar and others about the cases that we work on.
0: So, Paul, let's uh, change up the order a little bit. Why don't we talk about the mass arbitration issue and then discuss the two Supreme Court cases? So with mass arbitration, what is the issue there?
1: Forced arbitration clauses are used in the vast majority of consumer contracts, and most employers in America now have um, arbitration clauses with their employees where, you know, you can't get a job or hold your job unless you sign away this provision that says that you can't go to court if they cheat you or discriminate against you or break the law. You have to go to arbitration. And the arbitration clauses nearly always say you can't bring a class action, you have to bring a case by yourself. And so the implications of that are really quite big. So for example, in gender discrimination cases, if, you, if, if a person has to go forward alone, a woman comes forward and says, in this workplace I'm being paid less than men for the same amount of work, but she can only raise her own specific case, then they pick at it and they throw a bunch of details and say, you know, well, you, know, you, you showed up late, this kind of thing, or, you know, or, or they sort of litigate on an individual basis. If you can litigate that on a class-wide basis, then you look across the across the entire company, so it turns out that all the women are being paid less than men in job cate- categories, and you control for seniority, and you control for performance, and there still is this broad um, statistical problem, then, then the lawsuit looks really different. And so the arbitration clauses by banning class actions make it a lot easier for companies to cheat people in the consumer setting or for companies to discriminate against people or, or cheat them out of their wages in the work, work setting. So what's happened in the last couple of years is there are a small number of cases, but there are some, but there are cases that have gotten really big headlines in which some of the plaintiffs in a case won't, will, will bring a case not on a class-wide basis because they're forced into arbitration. But what they do is they go out and they advertise or they use private investigators or they reach out and they somehow are able to identify a whole bunch of people who have been cheated by the company. And so they file like 1,000 cases or sometimes even 5,000 or 10,000 cases in arbitration. Now, it's something that's very, very hard for the plaintiffs to do because they've got to actually represent every single one of these people separately. So they have to all be signed to separate retainer agreements. Their complaints and arbitration have to set out their particular facts. They have to respond to discoveries. They have to respond to interrogatories. They have to have every single one of them deposed, this kind of thing. But... One of the things that um, makes this – but if they start doing this and they start arbitrating the cases in like sets of 15, and in the first 15 cases, the plaintiffs win 13 of them, and they start getting attorney's fees case after case, all of a sudden there have been a couple of very high-profile cases in which defendants have settled these cases. And one of the things that's happened with this is – That um, if you go back to the beginning of the uh, sort of what I call the arbitration wars, but the challenges to arbitration clauses in consumer and employment settings, if you go back to, say, 2000, at that time, companies stuck the vast majority of the cost of arbitration on the consumer. So you'd have a consumer with like a $5,000 case, but it's going to cost $25,000 to pay some former judge $600 an hour to decide the case. And so the arbitration fees were so high the courts started throwing out arbitration clauses and saying, we're not going to enforce this that says that somebody can't bring a case against their employer unless they pay $30,000 of arbitration cases, uh, arbitration costs. That's ex- That's crazy. So companies started writing their clauses, and they started working with the big arbitration companies like the American Arbitration Association or JAMS to write rules that had the arbitration companies say, well, the corporation has to pay nearly all the costs of arbitration. And so that worked for corporations in their favor because it got, them, it got courts to quit throwing out their clauses and they were able to ban class actions and just the occasional person would, would actually go forward and sue on an individual basis. So what happened with these arbitration swarms or mass arbitrations is you had a thousand people who file a case, but now the corporation has to pay the arbitrator to decide all 1,000 cases. And now you've got some former federal judge who's charging $600 an hour or $800 dollars an hour if they're in San Francisco. And the company has to pay that amount. It starts becoming really substantial. And so, one of the things that's happened is you've seen some companies sort of settle on it, and it, sometimes they settle them individually. So it's a it's a mass of you know a thousand cases settled for the same amount. Sometimes the companies are going and trying to challenge their own arbitration clauses and try and prevent courts from from uh, trying and prevent the cases from going for an arbitration. So you've seen some really big companies go to court. To try and get the court to free them up from their own arbitration provisions. So it's pretty okay. crazy. It's um, it's not something that uh, a lot of us would have predicted some years ago. Um, now it, the one thing about this is, um, so it's great when it happens, and you know there's sort of this you know hoist on their own petard quality to it. Um, but there's also there's the reality is that this is really hard to do. You know, for lots of cases, it's hard to find the consumers who are cheated. Um, in in some event. So, for example, like uh, we were talking about the Fair Credit Reporting Act a minute ago. You know, I worked one time on a class action where um, this employer was um, using a credit reporting agency called IntelliCorp. Then they had um, one of their products was this uh, where they would do a super quick, like 30 minute um, background check on an employee and they had all these mistakes. So there were thousands of people Who applied for a job and all they found out was that you didn't get the job. And no one ever said to you, Well, you didn't get a job because IntelliCorps says you're a drug dealer or whatever. All they knew is they didn't get the job. So in that kind of case, how would you do a mass arbitration? You'd never find the people. You know, that case only was possible because one person had a friend who worked at the company who called them up and said, I didn't know you were a crack addict. And they were like, What? You know, and then they realized that they had this lawsuit, and then that led to a class action which fixed the problem for thousands of people and got them all all substantial recoveries and so forth. But, you know, there's a lot of these cases where the people who are being hurt, the people being scammed, it's all invisible. It hurts you in ways you can't see or you don't know about. So I think that this mass arbitration, you can see why it's getting a lot of press attention, why it's interesting to people, and you can see why it's going to be something that's not going to work in a lot of cases. And so one of the things I worry about is that some people are going to look at the mass arbitrations and think, wow, you know, this is great. It turns out that arbitration works on an individual basis. Just people can go file thousands of cases. And, you know, it's really not happening that often. So it's something that um, it's a lot of attention, but I think the attention is sometimes uh, greater than what its actual economic significance is, if that makes sense. And so that's one of the things I, I think people need to pay attention to. It's getting a lot of attention and maybe too much sometimes. Is that something that the Supreme Court has taken up or may take up? Um, not yet. I mean, I think that the Supreme Court, you know, tends to love arbitration clauses and they've enforced arbitration clause in all kinds of different settings. You know, I think that the setting of a company who writes an arbitration clause, um, then it starts, it turns out that, that it's actually working counter to the interest and they're asking a court to let them out of it. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a very attractive plaintiff. So, you know, attractive petitioner. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some you know, some corporate lawyers ask the Supreme Court to hear one of these cases, but I'd be, I'd be a little surprised to see the Supreme Court want to hear that case. It's, if, if I was them, I would stay away from it.
0: Okay, well, let's get to the, uh, the two Supreme Court cases. Uh, first, Ramirez, and then we can talk about Goldman Sachs. TransUnion versus Ramirez. Uh, this is a Fair Credit Reporting Act case. So What can you tell us about the issues there?
1: Yeah, so this is a crazy case. Uh, So there's something called the OFAC list, which turns out to be the terrorist and drug dealer watch list that the United States Treasury Department maintains. And so people have their names on this list. And so TransUnion is a credit reporting agency. So they gather information about pretty much everyone in America. And then if somebody wants to buy the information, they sell it to them for a price. So one of the things that they can do is if they have, say, uh, my name on a list, they can check to see if it's actually me with negative information by checking my birthday or my social security number or something. With the terrorist drug dealer watch list, they didn't do that. So people would have their name on a list because they had the same first and last name as somebody who themselves was a terrorist or drug dealer. And so in this case, there are 8,150 people who are falsely listed as either terrorists or drug dealers on their credit files. Um, and so these files go to all sorts of people. So if you want to take out any kind of loan, you want to buy a car, or you want to buy a house, they always run your credit file. If you want to rent an apartment, 90 percent of landlords in America check credit files before they'll rent you an apartment. Um, you, if you have an existing credit card, they check your credit file a couple of times a year because they're trying to see if anything's gone wrong with you so they know whether to raise their um, rates or to lower your limits or so forth. You know, your credit record is checked all the time. So, in this case, what happened was TransUnion said, "Well, you know we don't really keep records of who we sell your credit file to, so we don't know whether or not for the eight thousand one hundred and fifty people who are falsely on the um the uh, the the terrorist watch list, whether or not we sold the information. But I tell you what, we'll do a sample for six months. So they do a sample for six months, and they find that in the six months that they had sold one thousand five hundred people's information, um, that they were falsely on the credit t- terrorist watch list to creditors or whatnot. Um, but then they didn't check for everyone else in the class period. So what their argument to the Supreme Court is is, look, even if we falsely labeled somebody as a terrorist, if we didn't sell, if they can't prove that we sold their information to somebody, then how are they harmed? You know, it's like if i uh, if I lie about you when I say, you know, Tom is a, ch- a convicted, um, you know, embezzler and I, I know it's not true, I say it about you, but I only write it on a piece of paper and I hide it in a file and no one ever sees it, you know, are you harmed? And that's sort of their argument is that, well, you know, sort of no harm, no foul, nobody knew about it. But so the thing is, is that the, the, the Fair Credit Reporting Act says, Congress said that, look, if a company, if a, if a credit reporting agency has bad procedures, and TransUnion had bad procedures here, they had lost a jury trial and punitive damages in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit had said that they had terrible procedures. Then they were also getting notices repeatedly from the Treasury Department saying, hey, TransUnion, you're falsely listing people as, um, as uh, having um, being on the terrorist watch list when they really aren't. So TransUnion knew they had a problem, but they kept this up. And so under the Fair Court Reporting Act, every time that they um, do that um, and they have bad procedures and they put false information on your credit file, you can get a thousand dollars. So it was a class action for all 8,100 people, uh, 150 people. And the, the, the jury found that they should get, you know, close to the $1,000 in statutory damages. And then they also awarded punitive damages because TransUnion knew they had a problem and didn't fix it. So TransUnion's argument to the Supreme Court is, since they can't prove that the information we put in their credit records that was false was actually accessed by somebody, then they weren't harmed at all. And that's a weird idea of what harm is, because what harm is, Uh, in the law uh, under the constitution in the past has been if someone's exposed to a significant risk of harm, then you're harmed. So if they put the information in your credit file that says, you know, you're a terrorist or a drug dealer and it's not true, you are put at a huge risk of harm because people access your credit file all the time. Your existing creditors do and all sorts of different people you come into contact in the world do. So to me, what TransUnion is trying to do here is really dangerous. They're trying to say, you know, there's no damage unless you can prove that something happened to you. So we can just have terrible procedures. We can falsely list you as a terrorist and stick it in your credit file. And unless you can prove certain things, which we're going to make it really hard for you to prove because we don't keep the records, then, you have, then you're out of luck. So it's a dangerous case. And if the court goes with TransUnion, it's going to be disastrous for consumers' protection. It's going to be disastrous for class actions um, that you know about important consumer issues.
0: I don't know if this if this applies or not. But as you're saying it, what's the the, the Schrodinger's cat uh, thing in quantum <laughs> right. physics? You know, your 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 credit may be destroyed, but we're putting it inside a box that so nobody can see, so we don't know whether it's good or bad. That's right. Correct. But the thing is that what they do is they
1: take the box and they go put it in front of a crowded square, and then they don't <laughs> keep a camera on it to see who looks in the box or not. And they say, well, since we didn't keep a record of who looked in your box, let's just assume and no one no one did. And that's a that's a pretty uh, a dangerous approach.
0: OK, so getting on a getting on a terrorist list, uh, a list of drug dealers. Uh, yeah, that's got to take a bite out of your your credit score. So what uh, so how could Ramirez affect consumer class actions?
1: Well, um, it, it's going to depend a lot on what they do. I mean, one of the things I think that's going on here, you see this sometimes in some big class action cases in recent years is Um, the defendants have a lot of power over what cases they get the court to take. But sometimes the court takes a case and it turns out not to be the case they thought they were going to have. So here, TransUnion sort of sold the Supreme Court. Well, what happened here is only a small group of the 8,100 people were harmed. I actually think they were all harmed. and So I think there's a chance the Supreme Court throws it out. If the Supreme Court though says that the consumers have to prove something where the defendant keeps the records and they decide not to keep records, who they sell your information to, then the consumers are never going to be able to get, you know, where they need to go if they are being held to this really high level of proof, but the company can just not keep records and get away with it. And so I think that's a really dangerous
0: possibility here. Okay. And I was reading an article that you wrote and and, uh, you said normally uh, normally plaintiffs worry that courts tend to hear civil justice cases, which the corporate defense side picks. Uh, So why is this troubling? Um, You say the the vehicles for considering various legal issues often turn out to be less compelling cases from the plaintiff's perspective. In this case, though, the bad behavior by TransUnion is pretty bad. Yeah, it's
1: it's funny. I mean, usually... You know the defense bar has a lot more power over what cases the Supreme Court takes. You know, in, in the civil justice area, um, I would say 19 out of 20 cases in the last five years have been cases where the defendant lost in the lower court, asked the Supreme Court to overturn, and the Supreme Court took the case. And so lots of times what happens is the cases that become the vehicle for big legal issues, the cases that the Supreme Court's gonna decide, are cases that have really weak facts. And so one of the odd things about this case is that. Here, they falsely put people on the terrorist drug dealer watch list, and they were told by the Treasury Department and by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit they had a terrible system. So which defense lawyer thought that this was the good vehicle in which they were going to make laws has been sort of mystifying to me. Um, And I think that the only way they got there was that they convinced themselves that if you can't prove that they sold your information, that you weren't harmed. And so I think that that's um, but it's it's funny. It's it's a it's a it's a it's upside down from what you typically see at the Supreme
0: Court with consumer issues. Okay. And you may not know this, but I'll just ask anyway, the uh, of the eight thousand plus people who are now on these lists, is there is there a profile? Uh, What I'm trying to ask is, is it slant more toward people who uh, are less affluent um, uh, or minorities or is it all over? So I think that there's going to
1: be a, 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 a so a number of civil rights organizations are really alarmed about the case, and one of the things that they are concerned about is that there does seem to be, and I haven't seen a statistical breakdown, but there seems to be a heavy um, overrepresentation on the list of people who are either Latino um, who had names that are fairly similar to somebody who was you know listed on the on the drug list. Or people who have um, Islamic names who um, are, are are similar to names that were on the terrorist watch list. And I think if some of that goes to how the Treasury Department keeps track of who are you know falls into these categories. But I think there's a real overrepresentation where there are fairly some fairly common names where there's just a boatload of people who have a have a particular name, but that's common in in uh, in that population. So I think that there's a real uh, element of, of racism that's built into this. And I think it's uh, it's systemic and it's going to carry out throughout. And so I think that I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see some of the leading civil rights organizations in the country come in and try and draw that
0: to the court's attention. It's really a problem with this case. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about Goldman Sachs. You're listening to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. It's sponsored in part by Fast Case an industry-leading legal research service that provides essential tools with the goal of making legal research easier and more intuitive. Trusted by lawyers, law firms, and bar associations across the country, FastCase delivers comprehensive digital access to the law, including cases, statutes, regulations, court rules, bar publications, and more. With over 20 years of experience in doing so, Fastcase is always working to make smarter tools and continues to push the limits of what's possible with data-driven law. Visit fastcase.com to start a free seven-day trial today. Now back to my interview with Paul Bland of Public Justice. Another case that, uh, that you, you had told me about, which is going to uh, Supreme Court, it has been taken up by them, is is Goldman Sachs versus. Uh, Arkansas teachers, what is it, pension fund yeah. or something? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, and this had to do. Why don't you well? Why don't you set the stage? What is that case about? So Goldman Sachs, if you go
1: back to the run up to the two thousand eight financial crisis, um, they were selling a lot of these uh, sets of securities. Um, And they have these they have these complicated names and initials. But anyhow, they basically sell a bundle of securities that were filled with um, people's mortgages. And they would say, look, you know, uh, first, you know, you get an income from this security because people pay their mortgages and there's the income. But then also the security is backed up by the actual houses. So there's almost no risk to it. So these securities are great. You know, so you should buy one of these things and you'll get income and you're pretty certain everything's going to be all right. And so, meanwhile, Goldman Sachs, you know, is paying a lot of attention and they start realizing there is a lot of fraud in the securities market. And there are a bunch of these mortgages which are not good. Um, you know, people were sold mortgages they can't, um, they can't pay. People were all sorts of people were being pushed, uh, you know, being pushed by predatory lenders into taking out mortgages they weren't going to be able to afford. And there were a lot of distressed mortgages in these securities. So, Goldman Sachs is selling these things to a bunch of their customers and They're using their they're building up their reputation. They say, look, you know, we at Goldman Sachs, our reputation is the most important thing we have. And we are people of the very highest ethical standards. And what we can promise you is we will always put the interest of our clients ahead of ourselves because the clients come first. and We have a fiduciary obligation to you. You know, you are more important than we are in our minds. So they make all these promises. So meanwhile, they have some other clients like Hank Paulson is one who um, starts betting against the mortgage market and uh, is shorting the market. In other words, he thinks his market's going down. And so Goldman themselves begin to start making some very significant bets, gigantic bets, hundreds of millions of dollar bets uh, that the, mar- that the uh, mortgages are going down. And they've got some inside information that in fact, these, uh, these securities are distressed. So you know, lo and behold, it turns out the securities do drop down. They are filled riddled with fraud. And uh, the people who are holding the investments like the Arkansas teachers' uh, retirement system end up losing, uh, losing money. And so they sue and they say, look, Goldman had knew, knew that these securities were problems and they were betting against them. And so they're selling these securities to us without telling us that they're betting against them for like, their, you know, there's some special clients. And that um, so we were harmed by it. So it goes to the Supreme Court and Goldman Sachs has two arguments. So the first argument is they say, look, um, the things that we said are just so general that you can't sue us for them. So, like, you know, if I was going to sell um, clothing, I said these are really good clothes, and it's just vague. Then somebody buys it and says, Well, I think it's lousy clothes. So you, you know, I sue you for selling this as good clothes. You know, the Supreme Court would say, Look, those words are too vague, good, bad. You know, that's that's nothing you can base it on. So Goldman is saying, when we told people that we would put their interests above our own, that's just a broad aspirational statement. You can't hold us to that. If we break that, we lie about that. You know, how could that be fraud? Well, you know, it sounds like fraud to me. I mean, I think that uh, saying that they're going to put their interests uh, beneath yours is something that you should you should be able to uh, trust. You should be able to rely on and believe in. And that's I think that their the first the first issue is the idea that it's just too vague to bring a lawsuit over, and I think that's really troubling. Um, the second issue that they have is go it's right now going back to 1977, the Supreme Court adopted a rule for securities class actions that basically the gist of it is that, look, um, we're going to assume that the stock market, securities markets, are going to respond to information. So if somebody t- puts out false information that a stock is really good and the price goes up, then um, then we're going to assume that the information that, w- that claimed it was really good influenced the price going up, that the stock markets take into account information. And so what's significant about this is that in a class action, if it's, a, if it's just normal common law fraud as opposed to fraud under the securities statutes, you know every single person has to come in and separately testify, well, I read the false statement and I relied on the false statement. So there are really no class actions in common law fraud. But going back years, there have been securities fraud class actions. And the understanding was that the Congress that passed the Securities Act had the idea that if you have information, that that affects the stock price. So Goldman Sachs's argument is, well, here the stocks didn't go up in value; they just stayed as high as they were, but they didn't drop, and it's because the market was dropping. So the argument of of, of the Arkansas teachers, you know, retirement system is, look, um, if the stock market as a whole is dropping and you're holding the price up so it's higher than it would have been, that we still were cheated by the false information. Because if we'd known the false, if we know that information was false, we would have paid less for these and the price would have dropped down. And that's the it's the rule. It's called basic versus Levinson. So not basic is the, the word basic, but rather basic was the name of a company, essentially. Um, so basic versus Levinson was the idea of the stock market responds to information and that you don't have to prove individual reliance. So, what Goldman's trying to say is, well, that only applies to the situation where the stock price is going up. If the stock price is staying where it is or dropping down, it doesn't apply. It's not a problem. And so that's a sort of a strange theory. Basically, what what Goldman wants the Supreme Court to say is that the stock markets only work as an efficient market that responds to information at a time when prices are going up. So, that's a a funny rule of law. It would certainly help Goldman Sachs hold on to its money. You know, because they had to pay five hundred million dollars to the Securities and Exchange Commission, but they haven't paid anything to their investors yet. And so the question is whether the investors are actually getting money back, as well as just the government being able to sue them. But it's um the you know it's the idea that uh, that what they want to do is they want to take a bite out of the idea that the stock markets work. And it'll be interesting because the Supreme Court's been asked twice in the last ten years to basically say well, you know, there's no reason to believe that the stock markets react to information and that they aren't efficient. And so every single investor should have to prove their case individually. And by, you know, six to three votes, um, the Supreme Court's repeatedly ruled against that. And I think one of the things that Goldman Sachs wants to see is whether the change in the Supreme Court is going to change this. So Justice Kennedy is gone and Justice Kavanaugh is in his place. Um, Justice Ginsburg um, died and Justice, um, uh, you know, Barrett is in her place. Or um, is the new court going to be different and essentially say it's OK to lie to people around the around stock prices and not allow securities class actions? You know, there there's sort of a group of people who have very, you know, sort of pro corporate ideas who think, well, you know, um, uh, should be caveat emptor. And, you know, if you if you're stupid enough to believe a lie, then you deserve to lose money in the stock market. And we don't think that being able to have stock, you know, uh, securities fraud cases is a good thing. Um, it used to be, I'm old enough to remember that 10 years ago, the Supreme Court said, no, no, we actually need to be able to police the securities market, securities fraud is a problem. Um, I think Goldman Sachs is hoping that the Supreme Court's going to change that view. So we'll see. It's, it's potentially a gigantic case. You know, if Goldman Sachs wins this case, then, um, you know, everybody should be a lot more careful with their five, uh, 501, uh, 401ks, you know, because we're all going to be a lot more at risk.
0: Okay. I don't know if you feel like predicting or not. I don't know. Would you say uh, with the new Supreme court on these issues, are you nervous, cautiously optimistic, <laughs> optimistic? Uh, so I guess I would
1: say um, uh, the first two. So I'm very nervous. I don't know what they're <laughs> going to do. I think predicting what the, what the Supreme court is going to do is, uh, is very risky. <laughs> um, but I would say that I'm uh, cautiously optimistic and that I feel like um it's hard for me to see uh, uh, the conservatives going with Goldman Sachs on this. I mean, one thing about this is that if you're a conservative who sort of believes in law and economics, and you know, for for a lot of conservatives, the idea that markets work is is really a powerful idea, and it's sort of the idea why they don't think you need government regulation because markets will work. Well, if you believe that markets work, then the stock market should be. A particularly effective market. It should be an efficient market where there's they're less sticky. There's less crazy things causing the market to break down. And so Goldman Sachs is essentially trying to make an argument that will say, you know, well the stock market shouldn't be able to, uh, shouldn't be trusted to be relying on information. Each person has to come in and testify individually. Oh yeah, you know, I relied on that information in, in not selling or whatever. That's a funny position for a conservative. So I'm cautiously optimistic that they won't go for it. But um, you know it was a little surprised that they took the case, to be honest. So it'll, okay. be, it'll be interesting to see. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Well, Paul, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. It's really been fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Uh, once again, you've been listening to Paul Bland, Jr. He's the executive director with Public Justice. And uh, we appreciate Paul's uh, participation very much in this. Uh, Again, this is uh, the Emerging Litigation Podcast. This is a a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation Conferences, and Fastcase, and Law Street Media. It has a companion uh, product called the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, which I affectionately call jail, but nobody else is allowed to, apparently. But it's the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, where we feature uh, guest articles, original pieces written on hot topics in litigation, as you would expect. If you have any ideas for future issues, or they're not issues really, you know, they're episodes. If you have ideas for future episodes of this podcast, or if you're interested in participating with a submitting an article for the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, please write to me. I'm Tom.Hagey at litigationconferences.com. Thanks for listening.